0: From Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, your number one stop for news about movies and classic rock in the Miami
1: Valley, it's Reels and Riffs with Random Allen. Welcome to Reels and Riffs. It's been a while, hasn't it? I apologize for um, us having such a long break on the show, weather got in the way, but I am joined in studio right now by my friend, my good friend, Steve Lloyd. How's it going, man? Good, man. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, it's great having you on. Um, on
2: your way to the studio, oh, did we run into any like winter issues this time around? Um, no, and I'm really surprised considering it's Ohio and things haven't changed within like an hour. So, no, actually things went yeah, pretty well. That's one of the biggest <laughs> things about
1: Ohio. Um, you can, definitely can never say that it's not an interesting weather state.
2: Well, absolutely. I've always said that there's like five seasons, summer, fall, winter, spring, Ohio. Okay, let's get to my big three. Here's
0: Random's big three. Number one, the Beatles were and always have been just a unit of four guys, all supporting each other, all liking each other, and having each other's backs. They've got each other's backs every every step of the way.
1: Two weeks ago, Peter Jackson launched a huge IMAX release in the rooftop concert section of his long-anticipated Beatles documentary, Get back. What are our thoughts on The Beatles, Get Back, Let It Be, and The Beatles' songwriting process? Number Two the The Who is finally coming back to the U.S. with a huge concert tour called The Who Strike Back. And we see The Who finally return to Cincinnati after 40 years. What are our thoughts coming up? Number 3 Cage becomes a vampire one more time for Universal's upcoming film, Renfield. Is it a comedy? Is that as ridiculous as it sounds? Yes. Our thoughts on these stories and more are coming up. Okay, so getting into our first story, Peter Jackson, as we all know, um, back in November, he released his long-anticipated documentary The Beatles' Get Back, which was a nine-hour recut of all the footage from their Get Back project, which originally, it's like the making of the Let It Be album. Originally, um, they cut it down into the movie Let It Be and tried to make it into a Beatles breakup movie, but then um, Peter Jackson found all this footage, and he's like, wow, this is actually like a lot um, more upbeat and you know more of the beatles we know and love than like he originally thought and then he cut together this amazing documentary that um just got the rooftop concert section of it when they um, went off onto like the roof of apples like of apple records and then played their like last live show just got released in imax and in addition to that um the the beatles like um are Creating an exhibit for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame based around the Get Back sessions that will be like um, starting around March. It is crazy to me that the Beatles are still, like, very relevant and, like, you know, we're still talking about them today. And I'm curious, Steve, like, you're a big Beatles fan. Like, what do you think it is about the Beatles that really makes them, like, endure, like, you know, this long? Like, we're, we're talking about them, like, um, nearly a half century later. What do you think um, about the Beatles really spans
2: the generations? I've always thought just the fact that they have always, to me, like, they've always seemed to be, like, in a class by themselves – and they were doing things a lot differently than um, a lot of the main acts back in those days were doing. You know, uh, you'd have like your vocal groups and everything and big band acts, and then along comes the Beatles. I mean, they were just absolutely in a, and still to this day, I believe, like still in a class by themselves, just doing it differently than what everyone else was doing.
1: That's one of the things I remember um, hearing from George, like hearing um, in one of the George Martin interviews where Eric, he was confused on how to, like, um, on his first impression of them, he was confused. Like initially, because he was like, "Wow, you got two vocal like you have like um the bassist and like the like the rhythm guitarist or vocalist," and it was fundamentally different than the way like a lot of people like like um you know had their band set up back then. Like back then, you had like competition from like Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, Herman's Hermits, and and the Shadows and stuff like that. During but
2: the Pacemakers as well. During the I Pacemakers,
1: think. and they were very fundamentally like differently structured bands back then.
2: Oh, yeah, like uh, just the style and structure and everything. And, uh, of course, you know, the, the aforementioned names were making a big name for themselves. Anyhow, then the Beatles just came and just blew up in a new door entirely. Exactly. One of the
1: most interesting things about Get Back to Me is seeing their songwriting process. I mean, You're a songwriter yourself, and it was really interesting to see, um, I would almost call it like Socratic songwriting, where they spent the majority of their time like screwing around and then, Like playing different covers. And essentially, they kind of molded the songs from, they had like a little idea, a little riff, and then they molded the songs by like playing them over and over again and adjusting little things. And then the songs just kind of like came together. There wasn't like a lot of, watching Get Back, there wasn't a lot of pre planning beforehand for like a lot of this stuff. As a songwriter, like how is that compared to, you know, like um, the the norm for you? Like, is that like um, different or are there more bands nowadays that kind of imply or employ? a different um, kind or a similar kind of approach
2: um well uh, speaking personally for me every time I come up with a different kind of a song idea it'll just happen out of nowhere like I'll, I'll think of like a certain line that someone will say and it'll just stick in my head or something I just never thought of before it's uh, I mean I've always likened it to like building a house the main idea is your foundation and the melodies and the riffs and everything leads and whatnot. Um, that's pretty much all your, your walls and your interior decorate. It's, it's, it's no more like than building a house really Uh, with, obviously with a house, there's a lot more rules, but in terms of lyric writing, it's just whatever you can come up with, whatever sounds good at the time, something don't like it, you can just switch it out and change it, keep it as it is. So it, but relatively it's always a fun process. Yeah. But you kind of plan it out a little bit more
1: than like they did where they kind of just did it like in the middle of the session.
2: Yeah. Like it'll sometimes happen that way. I'll, like, just the other day, and still to this day, I always do this. Like, I'll write something down and think, okay, that's that's pretty good. I can do something with that. Then, like, the next day, I'll look at it and go, what was I thinking? Like, yeah. no. Yeah, <laughs> let's, just let's, completely, like, rewrite the whole thing. Right, pretty much just tear it down, and sometimes I'll keep some stuff or throw it away. But, yeah, it's it, it's really like a mixed bag in my department, you know, because, like, you just never know what you're going to do, and I don't even yeah. know what I'm going to come up with.
1: One of the interesting things, like, um, watching it back – is um there's kind of this there's kind of the stereotype that people like all the like most people like older generation back then like hated the Beatles. They thought, Oh, you know, these people are being subversive, they're not, um, you know, they're like poisoning the youth. There's like a James Bond movie where like um he says, you know, the best way to listen to the Beatles is with like earplugs in your ears <laughs> and stuff like that. But so they interviewed during the rooftop concert section. They are interviewing people like pastors by, and there's a lot of older people back then, like who were digging the Beatles. They're like, you know, oh, it's the Beatles. You know, they're great. Like even back then, and like I think that that's part of the appeal, where the Beatles really are cross generational.
2: Yeah, they were like as the, you know, like as the years have gone by, you know, they become timeless, and it's more or less like become a phenomenon. That's even put it that way, but like. Um, but there, like, nowadays, it just seems like there's something for everybody nowadays. Yeah, yeah.
1: One of the... So... They were, the first time that they tried to do like a Beatles movie like this was, of course, the Let It Be film to like cover like um, the making of what would become the Let It Be album. And you've seen that movie. Like I haven't seen that movie in a while. Oh, how would you compare? Um, you know what you've seen of Get Back to that like film, like tone wise. Like I feel like Let It Be was trying to be a break, like a beat, like they were intentionally put in only the scenes in it to make it more like a Beatles breakup movie.
2: Um. Well, when the first Let It Be film first came out, um, and then comparing it to the um, the new one that just came out, uh, let's just say the former was like a dog not knowing it's going to the vet, and then Get Back is when they know they're getting a treat. That That's about the only comparison I have, but like it, it's definitely, it, it just seems like with this version it's a lot more free, it's a lot more fun. And I don't know, in some ways, a lot of ways, it's very relieving too.
1: Yeah. And then when you see, like, um, Billy Preston, when he comes on board, I think that his contributions to, like, um, Let It Be has kind of been minimized over the years because of, the like, the new mix. But, like, when he comes on board in the film, you can see the whole room change. Like, everybody's having a lot more fun because he wasn't even supposed to, like, come on to play on the album. He was just showing up to um, talk to them because, you know, he was friends with, like, George. Yeah. And then, like, they're like, oh, you know, this is great. You're adding a lot of energy. Well, I'll help you play on the album.
2: Yeah, It's just, and, you know... It's, it's a shame too. Also because like he's a really great, and I think a very underrated musician, great keyboard yep. player, and for that to be minimized and stuff, it's like you're kind of obviously the focus is on the Beatles and everything, but um, but we can't leave out Billy Preston. Man, he definitely gave it like a whole different kind of flavor and made it more fun. And exactly. everybody was on their best behavior, kind of like when George brought in Clapton for the White Album.
1: It's very rare that like you know the Beatles brought in anybody as like a session player. Oh yeah.
2: I was almost unheard of at that time in the early stages of the career.
1: I'll kind of use this to segue into um the drama in relation to like the get back sessions, what became Let It Be. Like, Let It Be as an like as an album, I love Let It Be. Like I think it's a an underrated record. But one of the biggest things about Let It Be, and I kind of alluded to it where I was talking about Billy Preston, is that the Beatles weren't able to actually like um deliver on the creative vision. Like what they were trying to do and get back was really to get back to um the days in Hamburg where they were playing live. Yeah, the roots. Yeah, yeah get back to the roots. And then like the original mix, like the original mix that um Glenn Johns did, like their I think he's their audio engineer. Yeah, I like, think you're right. Yeah. Him and he, Jeff
2: Emmerich, I think, were Yeah,
1: him and Jeff Emmerich. And then um, The original mix that they, like, cut together was kind of closer to what they were, you know, originally, like, out out to do. But then eventually the project after – through a bunch of, like, drama and stuff, because, of course, this was after Brian Epstein died. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Alan Klein became their manager. He brought on um, convicted murderer and guy with really bad hair, Phil Spector, who – as a producer, like I agree with, you know, I like some of the stuff that you know he, he's done on various records. But the biggest thing like that I don't like as far as Let It Be goes is that they essentially muscled the Beatles out. And then they um, kind of, you know, they're just like, Phil Spector was like, hey, I want to add a sp- stream part on Lawn and Rondon Road. And um, Paul McCartney's like, no, that's not how I want the song to go. And then they just kind of forced them to, you know, like Phil Spector just kind of like added all this extra stuff, and you know, it didn't matter what the Beatles had to say. They just kind of pushed the like the actual band out.
2: Yeah, like, um, and we we were talking about that the other day too, I believe. Uh, along a Winding Road, uh, with the string arrangement, it sounds great, but when I finally found out what the pretense behind that was, you know, when Phil Spector basically just took over, yeah, um, that's when I don't know, it just, but. Paul had every right to be upset. You know, he wanted it a certain way. Yeah, it's song. Right, exactly. And for him to just go over and take it over without the boy's permission is just absolutely appalling in retrospect.
1: Yeah, and that's another thing. Like, um, one of the... He would, like, you know, lower the sound of the Beatles' actual instruments. And also, he... It's really hard to hear Billy Preston on it and he's such a big part of like you know what they were going for with a lot of their songs and they kind of like lo- like you know you can barely hear his piano on some tracks and even though like you know there are things like um on Let It Be the George solo that they original that they went with later like the the one that's on the album like it's you know a very kind of hard rock solo like I like that version of the on solo on the original Let It Be Yeah on the
2: on um, original Let It Be but not but, Let It Be Naked with
1: Yeah not Let It Be Naked because that wasn't what um they had wanted that wasn't the solo they wanted to use for the actual like album originally that was like a full specter call which you know there are some things on there like the string like arrangement on um lawn and wind and road that's another thing where like it it does sound good but you know you're you're muscling over the artist and you're like trying to say oh i know better than the beatles like i'm my own like you know i create my own wall of sound and you know i i'm you know i want my own producer um stamp on everything
2: Right, and I, you know, I also listened to that song. Also, to me, it sounded like Paul was kind of buried underneath all that orchestration. Yeah, you can hear Paul on his piano, which is great, but, but it's like buried. It's really buried. Like you can hear him, but not. It just wasn't an equal balance of mixing. So. Exactly, and
1: that's the biggest thing when you're muscling over the artist. Actually, that's one of my. Um, that's part of why I think that a lot of music nowadays kind of suffers is because you have like too many suits like, Alan Klein or, like, Phil Spector, who are muscling over, like, music artists and just saying, like, oh, we know better than you. We're going to make your song into something that you fundamentally don't
2: want it to be. Make me money. Screw your dreams.
1: Exactly. (laughs) So um, we're going to take a quick little break. We're going to take a quick little break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking about the Who's New Concert Tour. And also we're going to be talking about Nick Cage's foray. Uh, again once again as a vampire you're listening to reels and riffs back in a moment
0: you're listening to reels and riffs back in a moment Miami Valley's number one spot for film talk and classic rock. It's Reels and Riffs with Random Allen.
1: Hey, welcome back to Reels and Riffs. And on this day in rock history, um, Neil Young, Stephen Stills, Richard Ferre formed Buffalo Springfield in Los Angeles back in 1966. Actually, they um, when I first started learning guitar,
2: For What It's Worth was the first song that I ever learned. Very easy song, only two chords. Yeah, same for me as well. And the, like, it, that's another one that's a just a timeless hit. I entirely agree.
1: So, um, the next thing that I really want to talk about is the Who is launch, launching their first big um, concert tour pack since like COVID hit. They're going across like multiple different U.S. cities. It's called the Who Strike Back. Starting in April, they have the lineup of, like, right now they have the lineup of Roger Daltrey on vocals, of course, Pete Townsend on lead guitar, but they also have Zach Starkey as their drummer, who they brought him on, um, you know, a little bit, they brought him on kind of, I think, around, like, the 90s, like, the early 2000s when they started touring again. Yeah, which, yeah. Zach Starkey, as you know, is Ringo's son, and actually, Keith Moon's godson, he's
2: a lot more like Keith Moon than Ringo, surprisingly. Is that for like a uh, style of playing or? Because I don't think I've ever actually sat down and listened to Zach's.
1: Style playing and behavior. Really? He's kind of, you know, one of those like, um, <laughs> I wouldn't want to say party. Look, Heat Moon was a, I would say he's like a walk in uh, Monty Python gag. <laughs> and that fits because he was good friends with them. He was good friends with the Monty Python crew. Oh, that's right, yeah. But that also is- we have um, bassist John Burton who, um, he hasn't really done, like, a lot of stuff I know, but he's been, like, a session bassist on some modern pop songs. You have huh. Pete's younger brother, Simon Townsend, on guitar and vocals, keyboardist Lauren Gold, back vocalist Billy Nichols, vocalist and violinist, like, Katie Jacob, cellist, they have a cellist, Audrey Snyder, and keyboardist Emily, uh, keyboardist Emily Marshall. The tour is the first time that, and also, um... Within their tour dates, it's the, it's the first time the band, the band is going to perform in Cincinnati since the tragedy back in the 70s, which is big news. Um, I personally, my um, my fiance Alex, she bought me tickets to go see The Who in Cincinnati, so we're going to be heading there. I think that the show is going to be in May, like, everything will stand in. But one of the things I wanted to, like, um, talk about with The Who is, like... The Who, fundamentally, back when they were um, at the height of their popularity, were very unique in sound, where... And my dad says this a lot when we talk about, like, The Who, where the Who's... The sound of The Who really came from the bassist, like, from John Ent- John Entwistle and then the drummer Keith Moon. And, like... Um, a lot of times you kind of have people talking about, like, you know, older bands, like, touring, like, people are just, like, you know, when when are they supposed to stop? Because some bands, like, you know, go on for too long. And I was curious about your thoughts about that. Like, um, like you know, when do you think a band needs to stop touring? And, like, I'm not saying that the, like, you know, listen to some of the Modern Who stuff. Like, it's still pretty good. But, you know, it's, it's different than what it used to be. And I was curious about your thoughts about, you know, because this is kind of a common thing where when should a band stop touring?
2: Um, well, I think the, like, main obvious thing was, like, when all the m- main members are dead, you know, obviously some of them can't be replaced, you know, and but the main, uh, I guess mainly when you just physically can't do it anymore or when you lose your voice, you're not able to play. I mean, obviously some bands, you know, obviously like the Who themselves. You know, they're still going, and I think it's interesting how, you know, one can stay, like, With the same members for that long you know but like it's really interesting to see some of these bands still continue to do it um but you know i and the mind of an artist you know you're pretty much done when you say you're done or something happens before then you know but i mean ultimately it's just uh just amazing to see that they're still going and some do it just for the sake of it just because they want to some do it for more money but you know I, i guess when you're done you're done
1: yeah exactly like, you know, people criticize the Stones a lot. And I think it kind of varies per, it kind of varies, like, per band. Like, you know, when, you know, when a band should stop touring and stuff. But with The Who, like, um, they still clearly really enjoy it. They enjoy touring. And I think that they still uh, retain some of their, like, you know, their some of their sound that really made them big back in the 70s and
2: 80s. Yeah. um, When you have, like, the main four, you know, you had, Keith, John, Roger, and Pete, you know, that was the main, the four pillars of that. You know, since a couple of them are no longer with us, like, they've, they, they, obviously, they try to compensate for it. But with this new arrangement that you just described, it seemed like I feel they could probably pull it off. Yeah, I entirely agree. And, like,
1: one of the, one of the coolest things I, Last year, I read um, Roger Daltrey's autobiography, and I listened to it, um, the the audio, t- or the, um, like, book on tape version where it has him narrated. And The Who has such an interesting and, like, crazy history, like, seeing all the stuff that they, like, um, you know, got into, like... Famously the Who was kinda known for that band that's always on the verge of breaking up. Yeah. And their <laughs> um their whole dynamic where it wasn't a it wasn't a cream situation like um with the bassists like Jack Bruce and um oh, the, Ginger Baker. And Ginger Baker where they legitimately hated each other. With the Who, like, you know, they got on each other's nerves. They like hated each other, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day they were like brothers. brothers. Yes, right. And like, um I would recommend to anybody because um that that autobiography to anybody because Roger Daltry's sense of humor is like on point. They like he mentions how um they got like a pet snake that eventually like oh. bit one of them and then escaped the tour bus. <laughs> you know, just thinking <laughs> you know, out of out of you know um the different
2: the different um animals you could have. I would expect I that know, on I Alice Cooper's tour bus, but idea. not the Who. I mean, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's like the most obscure thing to have on your bus.
1: Yeah, just have like a pet snake and then it like escaped. <laughs> um he one of my favorite stories from um his autobiography is he mentions how how um Famously, during Woodstock, like, you know, the, well, the Who really didn't like people jumping up on stage in the middle of their shows. Uh-huh. Naturally, like um, most musicians wouldn't. But during Woodstock, there was that guy who I forget his name.
2: Abby Hoffman.
1: Abby Hoffman, who jumped on, trying to do a political message. And, of course, Pete Townsend was like, you know, I don't necessarily disagree with what you're saying. But, oh, I can you know. dig
2: it. <laughs> That's what yeah. he said. Then he hit Then he hit Abby Hoffman. Well, he said that after he hit Abby Hoffman. And then, uh, yeah.
1: One of the funniest, one of the funniest stories in in relation to this, um, and it could have been like um, kind of, kind of as you know, that was the build up to this. Is during one of their shows, there was a fire in the building next door, and there was um, well, okay, I'm going to tell the first part. That during one of their shows, there was a guy that jumped up on stage mm. and tried to grab the mic. And then so naturally, like Roger Daltrey and like Pete Townsend, like you know they don't know who this guy is. They're like, oh, like oh no, like you know, <laughs> you know they don't know who this guy is. So like, um, Pete Townsend like punches him in the face, and Roger Daltrey kicked the guys, in, kicked the guy in the balls, <laughs> and threw him off the stage. Well, it turned out that the guy was a plainclothes police officer. Oh. Yeah. And then so um, he was trying to warn about a fire that was a few buildings down. But instead oh. of instead of doing it like, you know, in a way that wouldn't like panic the audience and wouldn't make them think that it was some crazy guy jumping up on the stage and trying to steal their microphone. You know, y- you never know with people at concerts. All oh, right. He decided yeah. to like jump up on stage and trying to steal that, like try to steal the microphone in the <laughs> middle of one of their performances. So, naturally, um, they had to be on the run for about, like, two days, <laughs> and apparently, according to Roger, he describes that they had this network of groupies oh, who man. would, like, um, you know, like, shield them while, you know, things were hot, you know, just so, like, you know, if they got into trouble, they, would, they, they could hide out their places, Wow. and eventually, you know,
2: they did turn themselves in, but, you know, oh, they, yeah. they were on the did run they, after they, they
1: oh. realized what happened.
2: Uh, that's well, I didn't know that about them. That's that's hilarious. Yeah. And like um,
1: one of the one of the biggest things that um, about the Who is that like like I said they at the end of the day they were brothers like. Um, they, they, like, went through really tough times, and, like, you have, like, um, Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey get in at each other's throats, but throughout, like, everything that they went through, like, Keith Moon being in the hospital, like, after, like, you know, various, like, accidents, you know, with the pyrotechnics, or, like, um, Pete Townsend was in, like, some, like, hot water back in the early 2000s, at the end of the day, they'd always, you know, like, be there for each other, like,
2: like, brothers,
1: right. and that was, you know, that's a really inspiring thing.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely, like, uh... course that just reminds me of the band fish you know that they went through a couple hiatuses themselves and uh um but ultimately at the end of the day you know like even when the Beatles broke up themselves you know like they all still were in contact with another you know because of all that time they spent on the road and private moments with one another and just just in life in general you know it's amazing how like they're still connected and all it took was music
1: yeah, exactly. One of the... To so pivot over to the Beatles for one second before we go to ooh, the last story and then the song of the week, is that... had you Have you ever heard the story
2: about the closest that the Beatles ever got to um, coming back together? Uh, yes. Um, I think... Wasn't that when... John and Paul were watching Saturday Night Live. Yes, it was when wanted they were watching to go down Saturday Night Live. There, but they decided not to because they were too tired. Yeah, it, was, like,
1: it <laughs> was. It was. It was the funniest thing about that situation is that like you know George and Ringo happened to be in New York at the same time. John or Paul was visiting like John, and they were on the couch watching Saturday Night Live. And one of their segments was like you know we will pay you know a million dollars if the Beatles get back together. And, and, and then Paul jumped it. up and he's like you know Let, let's go you know <laughs> like, let's go let's go <laughs> That that would have been that would have been like amazing. And I think that if they um, if John Lennon would have like um you know if if you know if he hadn't got assassinated, I think they would have you know got that together for at least like a record
2: or two like eventually because
1: you know they came back for the anthology album.
2: Yeah, and and in a way that like they kind of like reunited already, yeah. and so I think that was a very good closure point for them to do that, and you know um, but yeah, it maybe it could have worked. Maybe for a little while, then they probably would have like, okay, that's it, we're done, you know. Yeah. Like, do. And now, uh, when that incident happened, was were they at the uh, the Dakota? I think so. Yeah, where John was living. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And like they. It could
1: have been... It kind of varies with bands, like, coming back together, where, like... You could be, like, Zeppelin, which I think they did, like, a good ideal, where they came back together for that one real... Okay, well, they came back together um, during um, Live Aid, but that wasn't a good performance. Yeah. But they came back together for that one really big, like, um, big show. Celebration Day? Yeah, for Celebration Day. And then after that, they, you know, no more tours. That was it. Like, you know, go out with a bang kind of thing. Yeah. And, like... um, You know, it kind of varies with bands, like, you know, coming back. With, like, McCartney, I think that he's still, like, he still hasn't, like, you know, he's also, like, announcing a tour.
2: Oh, yeah. I I actually heard, like, some tickets actually went on sale, and within 20 minutes, in one particular venue or state or whatever, it sold out within 20 minutes. I mean, it is Paul McCartney. Yeah. Naturally. Still got
1: it. So getting back to the Who before we go to the last story, I would definitely recommend trying to get tickets now to go see the Who. It's their first time back in Cincinnati. And as we get closer to the event, I um I'm gonna cover like the Cincinnati tragedy. Like I'm gonna cover the um, concert tour in a little bit more detail. I'm gonna cover the Cincinnati tragedy in like particular because my dad actually was at that concert and it was crazy where um he didn't know what happened, but his friend was in the middle of that and you know, it's one of those things where it fundamentally changed how concert rules like went from there forward as far as like, you know, letting people in and having a signed seat in and stuff like that. But um, The Who, coming back to Cincinnati, is a big deal. If anybody's listening who's a big fan of The Who, I know we both are, definitely oh, yeah. get get tickets because, you know, um, you don't know when they're going to have, like, you know, their farewell tour. You don't know what's going to happen within the next, like, few years. You never know what band. So definitely get tickets, support The Who. They're um, a legacy band, but it's a great legacy, and I think that they still have that that little spark that made the band great. Like, it, you know, they have different people on now in addition to, like, Roger and Pete, but um, they still have that spark, and they still, like, enjoy what they're
2: doing, and that really matters. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's like when uh, Keith Moon passed and uh, they got Kenny Jones to play, but you still have John, you know, Pete, and Roger. You know, I mean, that was still a great dynamic. So I think yeah. they still got it left in them. I entirely agree.
1: So for our last story, and this is going to be definitely the silly one, um, Nick Cage is coming back. For the upcoming Universal, you guys can't see it, but um, <laughs> Steve is really cracking up right now. I, Universal is just, doing yeah. a Renfield movie, and it, it's a comedy. Just preface this, and Nick Cage will be Dracula, which is amazing casting.
2: Absolutely,
1: if you've ever seen *Vampires Kiss*, which is this like comedy movie from back in the '90s, <laughs> Steve did, just in the Nick it. Cage it eyes. Anyway. Yeah, Nick Cage is is like. Um, one of the best things about Nick Cage is that he's lovely crazy and he chews scenery like nobody I've ever seen, but in the best way. Like, he's the best kind of over the top, where at one point he's kind of, like, low like this, and then he goes crazy, and then he starts he starts talking about the alphabet, you know. There, there's, a, there's a scene in Vampire's Kiss where he gets up. He gets up. He's, like, angry at his secretary or something and it, about, like, a filing error, and he's just like, <laughs> you got to put it in the right file in alphabetical order. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, T, U, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. Huh? That's all you have to do. Oh, that was so good, man. That He... He is lovably crazy, and in that movie, he spends the whole time. He's a he's a British guy who gets turned into a vampire. There's a scene where he's running down the street yelling, "I'm a vampire! I'm a vampire! I'm a vampire!" <laughs> and then he's dragging around a cross. He's dragging around a um, not a cross, a stake, and he's trying to have like people passing by stake him.
2: He's like, "Oh."
1: oh. <laughs> Anybody should watch that. And just from seeing that movie alone, he is going to, the movie, the Renfield is in like pre-production right now, but definitely put that on your radar because it's, it's Nick Cage being crazy. Nick Cage, as, like, a vampire again, like, him as, like, you know, as Dracula, because Dracula can already be, like, over the top, like, and I mean that in the best way, like, oh, yeah. you know, it, Bela Lugosi. It's,
2: it's been done so many yeah. times ever since Bela Lugosi, though. Or,
1: like, Christopher Lee, one of my favorites, like, watching the Hammer Dracula movies, Yeah. like, the first one, actually, you know, which people, like, um, reception-wise think is the best movie, is was the least enjoyable, in my opinion, because after the first one, where they tried to adapt the novel, they just have Christopher Lee, like, coming back, and like, he's so over the top. Like, he's, like, slapping, like, he's slapping, like, the, like, the, you know, girls and, like, you know, people showing up. Yeah. He's, like, you know, um like, you know, has that smile and, like, screaming at people and, like, the, with the crazy eyes. Like, they're definitely having, like, fun with it. And, like, every movie they have Dracula die in a different way.
2: Yeah. Especially, like, uh, also Leslie Nielsen. Yeah, Leslie yeah. Nielsen. They yeah, they am loving it. Dead in Love, it. that
1: is a great parody movie. And some of the it best is. things about, um, and Renfield is probably going to be like that. And I can definitely see Nick Cage kind of channeling some of that Leslie Nielsen energy. Oh, he will take it
2: and run with it.
1: In order to have a good parody movie, you really need to love the source material. You yeah. need to love what you're working with because, like, anybody can make fun of something they hate. But, like, in order to actually do a good parody, you need to love what you're working with. And in that movie, they make fun of like the butt wig from um, from Bram Stoker's Dracula. They like have all this stuff, like you know, like you know, deep references and like the silly humor. Wig, yeah, yeah. I the thing about that movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Um... Who who was Dracula in that? Um, Gary Olman. Gary Olman. Yes, yes. He, he had a decent performance, but like you can't take him seriously with that. No, you can't take him seriously with that. On I and wouldn't. Keanu Reeves. I I stand up for Keanu Reeves as you know becoming like a better action actor in recent years. Oh yeah. But um, like nothing in that performance. Like completely wrong. Like completely uninspired. And like yeah. less, and like um, Gary Oldman in that wig at the beginning of the movie. It looks like a bamboo. Like a a like a baboon's butt and like that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, That, that is the perfect image. And you can't take it seriously. No, there's no way.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, um, with, with Renfield, I would definitely put that on your calendar. It's in pre-production now, but knowing Nick Cage and knowing how crazy he can be, this is the guy who did shrooms with his cat. (laughs) I'm not, I wish I was joking, but I am not Um, definitely put that on your radar because it will, um, it will definitely give you a buttload of laughs. I can't wait for it. Yeah. Now let's get to the song of the week.
0: Pull out your turntable and spin those
1: vinyls. This is Reels and Riffs Song of the Week. Hello, and welcome to the Song of the Week segment. This, this um, song of the week is where either me or my guests decide to um, play a song that's either, like, you know, related to something that we've been talking about or uh, means something to us in some way. What song have you picked for, like, you know, our listen audience to hear this week, Steve?
2: Um, in commemoration of their, uh, the fiftieth anniversary of their Eat a Peach album coming out last month on the 12th, I picked uh, Melissa. It's a really good one and one that just popped in my head one day. And, uh... By the Allman Brothers. By, by the Allman Brothers, yes. And, uh... Some features some of Dwayne's best playing? They're they're really underrated. Like, um, I think what a
1: lot of people, if you've never heard of the Allman Brothers, um, I think what a lot of people know them for is the section on Layla. Like, at the very beginning, he added a lot of the, like, guitar parts on Layla. He was part of um, Derek and the Dominoes. Yeah. With um, Eric Clapton. And some of the best, like, the more intricate guitar parts, like, um, overdubbed on that are Dwayne Allman's. And of course, you know, they um, got together as the Allman Brothers, and, you know, they are a very underrated band in, like, modern day.
2: Absolutely. And uh, they's another band that's still great to this day. I mean, both brothers are gone, unfortunately, but their, you know, their music still holds up to this day, and I love them.
1: Okay, so we're about to go to break, but before we go to break, please enjoy Melissa by the Allman Brothers. You're listening to WWSU 106.9, Dane's Right Choice. When we come back, Steve, I will interview Steve about his upcoming album in development right now, and he'll give us a short little sneak peek with a live performance it's to um, like show you one of the songs off of his new album coming up.
0: to Reels and Riffs with Random Allen on WWSU 106.9 FM. Welcome back to Reels and
1: Riffs. This is Nick Cage, your host. And I just want to talk about how um, kids don't do cocaine because <laughs> cocaine leads you to seeing invisibly guanas. And you know, that, that's just not cool. That is not cool. Shrooms, though. Shrooms with your cat. If you use it responsibly, that that's entirely better, and, you know, that's that's um, what I would recommend. And that is entirely a joke. Nobody nobody take that part seriously, but um, part of the reason, part of where that came from, the the intro in there, is that me and Steve were talking about some of Nick Cage's crazy roles on the break, and one of them is this movie called Bad Lieutenant, where he, hallucin- he um, hallucinates imaginary iguanas on a table and starts flipping out about it. <laughs> Okay, so getting into the interview of you, Steve, because you have a new LP, like, in development right now, and you released a demo to Store Shelves last year called Aesthetic Dream, which we covered on the show back then after it um, came out. What were the most important things that you learned from releasing that first demo record, and have you made any changes to your songwriting approach or, like, process going into this new record?
2: Um, Yeah, with uh, Aesthetic Dream, that was pretty much done in, like, a, a whim, I pretty much just just sitting around home one day and asking myself, well, are you going to do this or not? So then I just decided to do it on Spot and 80, and then, like, uh, a good bulk of that um, was recorded in one day. Um, so I felt like I was kind of on a mission at that point, and with this one, I am on a mission, but, like, in a grander mission somehow. But, like, uh, yeah, um, as far as a songwriting style approach goes, nothing's really changed, really. Like, you know, I'm constantly improvising the lyrics and structure and everything um, just to... Get some kind of, you know, the best performance out of myself, and just continuously getting better. So that it's pretty much all going in stages. So it's, it's going it, in stages. Yeah, it's pretty much just um, um, morphing for lack of better words. So and you're trying out different approaches. Yes. So some of them the same, some different.
1: Okay. So. We talked about this the last time you we were on the show, but it's been a while, so I wanted to, um, you know, bring this back up to our listen audience. Who are some of your biggest influences in terms of bands and musicians? And what, um, for going into this new record, and what um, aspects of their musical style do you think will influence the
2: sound of this new upcoming record the most? Um, my greatest musical influence is and always has been my father. He uh, got me into the music I listen to today, like what we just heard, and, uh... Um, Within, like, the first uh, songwriting, um, or for the new songs that, that are going to be on there, uh, some new and some of them have been on Aesthetic Dream and just changed some, um, I was recently listening to uh, Zeppelin's first album, and I just felt like, like, man, they were just so tight, you know? And when you listen to a lot of, like, first albums and you compare them to, like, the latest album of the band, they're entirely different. Some of these albums were just made on a whim because they only had like maybe just like pocketfuls of change for that much studio time. It's like when Black Sabbath recorded their first album in one day yeah. and that took about 12 to 16 hours and they wound up creating an entirely new genre um, but the impact for you know just that just that drive and determination just to go out and give it your best um, and knowing at the end of the day really like when you first start out, you may have like a little bit of a following but ultimately you're doing this for yourself. And, wit- and just the fact that you are able to do it at all, you know, definitely says something. But, I mean, as far as, like, these influences, they're still prevalent, as they were when I was younger. Um, and there's some new stuff I'm figuring out to this day. And, I mean, it's, you know, it, it definitely changes you and it influences you in some kind of way.
1: I think, like... Um... For musicians especially, the foundation of their style is really built upon, like, their influences most of the time. Yes, absolutely. Like, for anybody, like, um, if you take, like, Led Zeppelin, for example, like, they were inspired by, like, and also, like, um, the Beatles, they're inspired by, like, um, old blues, like, records that they heard, like, growing up and stuff. And,
2: delta you know, blues. and Yeah, delta jazz blues and, yeah. and,
1: like, you know, people like Elvis. Oh, and, yeah. like, you know, they, it, and they kind of incorporated that into what would become their own unique musical style.
2: Oh, yeah. they just came into their own. So, speaking
1: as, like, a born Ohio musician who has performed at several different local venues over, like, the course of his career, what do you think is the state of music in Ohio right now? And how do you think that the pandemic, now that we're finally starting to get out of it, how do you think the pandemic has really impacted,
2: it, like, local musicians like yourself? Um, I think, um, as far as the scene goes, I mean, th- there's a lot of new acts out there that are still emerging out of the woodwork and everything. I mean... Some of them are, you know, taking different styles and approaches of their own, and uh, they're really hanging in there, especially with this pandemic hanging in there. Um, But at the same time, like, with the pandemic as well, um, it seems like all these artists now, myself included, we actually have more time to think things out for our next project. And, you know, I know some local bands are starting to tour circuits again and everything, and they're just really getting back out there, and it seems like there's a like a big-time, like, newfound energy, especially when the fans come to the show. They haven't seen one in quite a while. So it's almost like they take the last show they saw, like, for granted, and now that they see them nowadays, whoever it may be, um, it's like they're even more excited and just glad that they're still here to enjoy it, you know? So, I mean, ultimately, um, the Ohio scene, uh, like, you know, there's all kinds of great players out there, street musicians, locals and whatever, but ultimately they're just... I think nowadays they're eating it up and you know the artists are themselves are coming back and playing with a whole different kind of fire and thus sounding better in the long run it's
1: one of those things where like you almost took live music for granted
2: yeah absolutely yeah like
1: the ability to go to concerts and then like now with it being so long like you know i think yourself the different like you know ohio musicians across the area and like even big bands like you know like um or big musicians like Paul McCartney or The Who, like we were talking about, like you know, they're coming back swinging because they're like, you know, we've been out of the game for so long, and you got, you know, you guys just want to kind of um, jump back in and jump your like feet back in the water and be like, um, here, here is live music once again.
2: Yeah, and I'm sure it's got to be hard, you know, though, especially for guys like them who've been doing it since you know, fifty or plus years ago. Uh, To them, it'll probably be like doing it for the first time. But even though they're still, you know, still doing it, and they're coming back this time around with a long extended um, uh, impromptu break off, I mean, they're going to come back and pretty much treat it like their first show. Some of them will, I think, you know. I agree.
1: So after hyping it up the whole show...
2: Steve is going to give
1: us an exclusive live performance of one a new song off the album he's working on. What is the title of the song, and like, what influenced you like to um, kind of craft something like this song?
2: Uh, the title of the song is uh, abbreviated RTA, not for the uh, fantastic bus service we got here in Dayton, but I mean that was like a slight joke, really, for that title. But uh, it really is stan- it really stands for um, recent terrestrial ascension, and. I don't know where I got the title from, but I mean the full title just out of nowhere. It's just random stuff that pops in my head that I think will uh, somehow gel and work, so it sticks with me, and I'm like, okay, maybe I should use this then. But um, as far as like developmental style and everything, it like it's still going through its stages, and you know, um, each time I do it, it's it's almost completely different, and uh, but ultimately, it's. Pretty much just getting into you know, I don't even know how to put it. You know I mean, it's yeah. just like because it because it's still in developmental state. It's yeah. it's pretty much like the it's it's what I would call probably the chameleon of the album. It's always changing.
1: Okay, well, without further without further ado, I think that's a well we'll hear it here first. I think the best way for our listeners to get an idea what it is is to actually hear it, and then without further ado, RTA. That was local Ohio musician Steve Lloyd. That was great, man. Good, yeah, man. Thanks for having me on again. Check out Steve's upcoming album, which will be released within the next few months. We'll keep you updated here. Next week, we are joined by custom 3D printer and hand painter Ken Kurtz from around the local area. You've been listening to Reels and Riffs on WWSU 106.9 Dane's Right Choice.
0: This has been Reels and Riffs with Random Allen. If you missed an episode, tune in to Reels and Riffs on Spotify. Follow Reels and Riffs on Instagram and Facebook. See you next week on Wright State's one and only radio station, WWSU 106.9 FM, Dayton's right choice.